the fullness of Christ, whose goings forth have been from of old. Eternal life is the glorious hope of those who know God and who know the Lord Jesus Christ. We define the gospel as the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. More than half the clauses in the BASF refer to the Lord Jesus, his birth, life, ministry and death, his sacrifice for sin, his priesthood and future kingship. It is abundantly clear, therefore, that a proper understanding of Christ is central to our faith. God, as the eternal creator, is of course supreme. The Father is greater than I. John 14, verse 28 and 10, verse 29. But the Son of God has been exalted to the Father's side and given a name which is above every name. The question to be addressed in this short series is whether we appreciate the full stature of our risen Lord and esteem him as we should. Do we understand what Paul refers to as the fullness of Christ? Our aim in these articles is not to attempt a life of Christ, but to focus particularly on the Lord's exalted status and to ask how, at the present time, we should relate to the one who sits in glory at God's right hand. As a community of believers, we have, very rightly, emphasised what Jesus is not. Our pioneer brethren and other protesters before them use scripture to counter the prevailing church doctrine of the Trinity, according to which Jesus is God the Son. As a consequence, in order to uphold Bible teaching concerning the nature of Jesus, we may have concentrated more on his humanity and neglected to acknowledge that truly in the Son we see the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. In order to appreciate our Lord's exaltedness, we ought first to retrace the path he followed in the outworking of the Father's plan. Our minds might go to Bethlehem, to the babe in the manger, but that was not the beginning. For his goings forth have been from of old, from everlasting. Jesus did not pre-exist, as Trinitarians claim. He was not there at creation, but the Creator who knew all things from the beginning had his Son in mind. Jesus was the beginning of the creation of God, and was verily foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. Old Testament scriptures portrayed so much about the coming one. His mission to conquer sin was foretold in the promised seed of the woman. His priesthood was foreshadowed in Melchizedek and his sacrificial death in the offering of Isaac by his father Abraham. Many aspects of the law of Moses, features of the tabernacle, the sacrificial offerings and the role of the high priest provide vivid types of the work of Jesus as sacrifice, priest and mediator. And in the words of inspired psalmists and prophets, the picture is enlarged to reveal the prophet like Moses, the Lamb of God, the suffering servant, the longed-for Messiah, the king destined to rule on David's throne. What was also clear from the beginning was the surpassing character of the coming Messiah. He was to be endowed with grace and beauty. Just consider these phrases from one of the loveliest of the Messianic Psalms, Psalm 45. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee for ever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. Thou lovest righteousness and hastest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh 
and aloes and cassia. We find an echo of this language in the Song of Solomon, where the beloved is spoken of as altogether lovely. It is true that Isaiah 53 describes the servant as one that hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Yet that is a merely human assessment, for in an earlier chapter, Isaiah writes, Thine eyes shall see the king in his beauty. So, when Jesus came into the world, faithful men and women rejoiced to see him in the fulfilment of those promises and prophecies, the many types and shadows. The devout Simeon discerned in Mary's newborn child the promised saviour, a light to lighten the Gentiles and the glory of thy people Israel, while Anna spake of him to all them that looked for redemption in Jerusalem. John the Baptist would later say, Behold the Lamb of God which taketh away the sin of the world. Andrew would tell Peter, We have found the Messiah. Philip said to Nathanael, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and in the prophets did write. And Nathanael could himself say to Jesus, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. These men and women knew their scriptures and were among many at the time who were in expectation, waiting for the consolation of Israel. Those first impressions in John chapter 1, just quoted, reveal how different are the reactions of different disciples. And that continues as you read on in the Gospels. The twelve in particular matured in their appreciation of the Lord. At Caesarea Philippi, in the closing months of his ministry, the Lord challenged them with the question, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He saith unto them, but whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. When the risen Lord revealed himself to a doubting Thomas, it brought forth the exclamation, My Lord and my God. Thomas was expressing the profound truth that Jesus reflects God's character and majesty. As John chapter 1 verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Meaning, he that hath seen me hath seen the Father. Peter and Thomas had thus learned to know their Lord, but there were those who, even after his resurrection, still failed to comprehend. The two on the way to Emmaus confessed, We trusted that it had been he which should have redeemed Israel. And with a gentle chiding, the Lord answered, O fools and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, ought not Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory? It is easy for us, with the benefit of hindsight, to wonder how they could fail to understand Jesus' mission, but perhaps we too can be blind to the true glory of our risen Lord. The example of the Emmaus couple is there to encourage us all to seek to see Christ, in his fullness. How did Jesus describe himself? What roles and titles did he acknowledge? In the upper room, when he washed the disciples' feet, he said, Ye call me Master and Lord, and ye say well, for so I am. Many addressed him as Rabbi, Master or Teacher. Others, particularly those closer to him, called him Lord. But how did he refer to himself? 
Jesus frequently referred to God as his Father, and he spoke of himself as the Son of God. Having restored sight to a blind man, Jesus asked him, Dost thou believe on the Son of God? And seeking to reassure Mary and Martha when their brother Lazarus had died, he said, This sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God might be glorified thereby. More often, however, Jesus would refer to himself as the Son, or the Son of Man. The Son we find especially in John's Gospel. The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth the Father do. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. For the Father hath committed all judgment unto the Son, that all men should honour the Son, even as they honour the Father. He that honoureth not the Son honoureth not the Father which hath sent him. Son of Man seems to be the title most frequently on the lips of Jesus. It is not a title that others use of him, but one especially used by the Lord of himself. To the Jew, Son of Man was an expression simply referring to a member of the human race, as we can see from the parallelism. What is man that thou art mindful of him, and the Son of Man that thou visitest him? In Psalm 8 verse 4. It is the way that God frequently addressed the prophet Ezekiel, For example, Son of Man, I send thee to the children of Israel. So, when the title is used of Jesus, it refers, in the first place, to his humanity. But there is so much more to this apparently simple expression. Son of Man takes us back to creation and the beginnings of God's purpose with the human race. The depravity of mankind today can blind us to the original divine intention for the man and woman God had made. He created man in his own image and made him to have dominion over his creation. As Psalm 8 continues, Thou hast made him a little lower than the angels and hast crowned him with glory and honour. Thou madest him to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet. That was the intention. But as the inspired writer to the Hebrews comments, We see not yet all things put under him, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. At long last, a son of man, Jesus, had come into the world, who fulfilled the destiny God had intended for Adam. When Jesus used that title, he clearly intended to associate himself with the Father's original purpose in Eden, there is a verse in the remarkable discourse of John 5 where Jesus hints at that connection. For as the Father hath life in himself, so hath he given to the Son, as he gave to Adam, to have life in himself, and hath given him authority to execute judgment, just as he made Adam to have a dominion, because he is the Son of Man. Jesus was given authority, and he is the one to have ultimate dominion. For he must reign till he hath put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that should be destroyed is death. The Son of Man is associated with the Lord's authority, both during his ministry and in the future. It is the title Jesus chooses when he speaks of his suffering and death. The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected, be killed, and after three days rise again. And significantly, the Son of Man is also used in relation to the Lord's second coming and the kingdom. For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, there shall be some standing here which shall not taste of death 
till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Our minds go to Daniel's vision of the four great beasts, which reaches its climax in the appearance of one like the Son of Man. Daniel 7 verse 13 and 14 says, I saw in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man came with the clouds of heaven and came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. And there was given him dominion and glory and a kingdom that all people, nations and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, that which shall not be destroyed. It was the Son of Man who first walked the streets of Jerusalem and the hills of Galilee with his disciples, and who was transfigured before them. And it is the Son of Man, now immortal, who will come again in glory, and who at last will be judge and king. I looked, and behold a white cloud, and upon the cloud one sat like unto the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And he that sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth, and the earth was reaped. Revelation 14. Jesus' faithful ministry as Son of Man proved him indeed to be the Son of God. Having been made like unto his brethren, touched with the feeling of our infirmities, in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin, he has been crowned with glory and honour. He was made in the likeness of men, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The risen Christ bears God's name and manifests his character. We have given the title Son of Man special emphasis, because, from the above evidence, it is surely the key to understanding the honour accorded to our Lord. It is a title that puzzled those who first heard the Master's words. Who is this Son of Man? And it is a title that still mystifies theologians today. For those, however, who will follow the inspired chain of ideas from Genesis to Revelation, this is a title rich in meaning. The whole purpose of salvation is encompassed in the expression Son of Man. We should not hesitate to exalt very highly the one who, sharing our nature, conquered sin, was raised from the dead, and exalted to the Father's right hand. By so doing, moreover, we also honour the Father. In the next article, we shall contemplate the role of our risen Lord as head of the Ecclesia and our oneness in him. <laughs>